Well, we've got a uh, super special episode uh, this week, Richard. And I have to say, I have not prepared for it at all. So what I'm going to do is take the reins, sort of like uh, patinaed and withered and warm and comfortable as they are, and just give them over to you. And then at the end of this, I know that with the August panel that we have, I'm going to be fully educated and ready to go back to coding. So I'm looking forward to it because my, my, uh, I'm getting tired of slides. It's not working out for me. So with that, why don't you, uh, why don't you have, take the reins over and have everyone introduce themselves? Yeah, thank you. I'm going to be like the engineering whisperer. It's going to be great. <laughs> They're going to do all their thing. And yeah, this is a very special episode. You're going to gather your kids around afterwards and explain it to them. So I'm glad we get to do one of these. We have some, we have some smart people on the line. So I'll quick uh, call you out and actually do just a couple second intro. So Mr. Schaefer, can you tell everyone who you are? I'm Andrew, often known as Andrew Clay Schaefer on the internet. Uh, I work for Pivotal. I think everyone here works for Pivotal today. We're just going to talk about some of the things we see happening, things people are struggling with, uh, with respect to managing deployments of or continuously deploying microservices or die trying. Awesome. Kenny, you are here. Say hello. Hey, guys. I'm Kenny Pastani. I'm a Spring Developer Advocate at Pivotal. I'm writing a book with Josh Long called Cloud Native Java, which has many of the topics we're going to be discussing today in the book. Um, so it's a topic near and dear to my heart. Awesome. And Ali, you're on. Say hi. Yeah, hi. I'm uh, Oliver Gierke. I'm the project lead of the Spring Data Project at Pivotal. Um, and outside my engineering role, oftentimes involved into customer projects, uh, software architecture, REST, and distributed systems. Um, yeah. Fantastic. So we are going to talk a little bit as uh, as Schaefer teed up this idea of how do I deal with these, you know, obviously dynamic distributed systems, updating them, contracts, things like that. But before we jump into it, I do want to have us define a few terms so that those listening, you know, we're all working on the same set of definitions. So when I, I think we should we should actually back up a else. little bit. We should back oh. up one step, which is the reason this podcast. Uh, is happening is the three of us had a little bit of a open discussion on Twitter about some of these things. And, and I wouldn't say we were arguing, but we didn't necessarily agree on, on how some of this should work. So I think it'll be fun to, to talk through this with the, the whole group. No, that's great. Kenny was on all caps, which when we knew it was done, we weren't going to, uh, we had to take it into the podcast cause he was yelling. So no, this was great. <laughs> we wanted to, uh, you know, it was great that we have this sort of forum because 140 characters never let you get the nuance out. And Ollie wrote a fantastic blog post, which also was about 1,400 characters or more to get some things out there. So, right. yeah, thanks for teeing that up. So let's let's talk about some of this first. So who wants to define contract for me? We should we should go right to the dictionary. There you go. There you go. Break out your Webster's. Ollie, do you want to take that one since you wrote that post? Yeah, I, of course I can take uh, I can take it. So we were basically like getting into a discussion about like how um, systems are interact or have to interact with each other, how they're basically coming up with an agreement of how they actually interact with each other. That means like besides um, defining the protocols they want to use to talk to each other, um, decide what kind of semantics they share, what kind of shared understanding about like the data they share and uh, the business processes that are actually implemented through that communication, right? And um, contracts and especially consumer-driven contacts, a topic that we're going to get into, are um, a, a well or getting kind of a, t a lot of attention these days. 
and uh, we basically got into into some argument about the nuance in terms of the effects of applying that um, kind of contract definition on the overall architecture in in uh, on on the teams how they communicate with each other and, and that's what basically uh, yeah, struck a chord to let me write that that blog post which is basically about evolving distributed systems in general mm-hmm. and the forces that that uh, are um, like applied to that to that topic in general why you actually uh, distribute system or, or separate uh, or divide systems into parts mm-hmm. and what what approaches to take to to evolve them then independently and um, contracts of course play a role in that as I said yeah. I mean, Kenny, how would you take a contract for someone to say, okay, when we talk contracts, we're not talking legal terms necessarily, but you know, what's the contract to you when you have a service definition? So the contract is something that a service is going to publish that tells all of its potential consumers uh, what exactly um, is the interface for communicating with that service. Now, you can take it further and say that, in the case of consumer-driven testing, that a certain uh, method, an API method, has an expected response. Now, the producer can publish that as a stub to let its consumers know exactly uh, how to interact with that API and for what conditions it can expect certain responses. And so that's the main... So if somebody says, who cares about contracts? They would say that because they don't want to deal with that or they don't like, you know, they have scars from soap and whistle times or, you know, for yeah. someone who, who doesn't look to those things, why, why look at contracts? Yeah. I, think, I think the core of the nuance that we were just having our, our Twitter discussion about is what's the implications with respect to coupling and, mm-hmm. and what can be changed independently and what can't. And just to, just to pull, because I did pull up dictionary.com. The number one definition under contract is an agreement between two or more parties for doing or not doing something specified. And I think that kind of fits under you know, mm-hmm. a, an umbrella for a lot of the stuff we're talking about. But, you know, Kenny, Kenny went right to um, th- this thing that would it get exposed by an API that would be able to, in, in some cases, even negotiate what, what the contract will be for that particular request, that particular session. Um, but in general, there's lots of things that are kind of contracts that go, that go unspecified and unspoken about, you know, just the fact that it's even, uh, HTTP requests or, or some of these other like protocol decisions have implications about the, the contract that you could keep. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, this comes up more and, and Ali, your post hit on this, because when we talk about microservices, whether we want to use that term or system of systems, as you framed it, that, as you start teasing apart these monoliths, you end up introducing a lot of new communication if you don't refactor or make these sort of self-inclusive systems. And if, if you want to reduce some of that communication, so maybe these contracts matter more as you have more services, more communication. Do you want to summarize just quickly kind of the position you put out there around teasing apart systems and considering what that communication is? And then to, to Andrew's point, what happens now when you have these systems with contracts between them? How, how do you start to deal with deployment concerns? Yeah. <clears throat> so let me start with the with the first thing. So what we what we started um, discussing was okay. What if you if you're like uh, if you're dividing a monolith into into separate systems, right? No matter if it's like two or ten or something. Um, the one thing that that fundamentally changes is the amount of effort that you have to communicate with the other system. So if you have a monolithic Java application, 
like talking to a different part of the system is basically a method call. There's no network in between. There is nothing. If you have like that split up into systems, you now have a network in between which can fail. The other system can fail. Um, you have to marshal your data into some JSON or some some serialization format. So if you keep the same communication patterns around for like this in systems com intersystems communication, then you'll run into issues because you 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 accumulate a lot of latency, and uh, you generally want to communicate less, right? So it's in like in a distributed systems world, you want to have more coarse grained requests, and you want to uh, uh, communicate less often, really. So that might already change the 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 approaches to architecture. Um, quite a lot because you, you might even want to design your system in a way that it doesn't actively reach out to other systems but rather publish events or something but even if you go with events and let's say messaging right you still the systems have to agree on on, on something because um as, as kenny already mentioned even if you don't formally go ahead and define like the, the shared semantics you will end up with something that's just an implicitly defined right so the fields that the adjacent document has for example um, and then you of course do yourself a favor to to negotiate that between the involved parties and and define those define those things and then be able to to make some guarantees around that um, the thing that i was kind of or slightly disagreeing or not even disagreeing i was kind of questioning or just wanted to to put an attention on the on the topic is that it's quite important or the the level of coupling you create with that uh is is very much depending on what exactly you put into that contract and what what aspects you focus on when defining the contract um and different approaches to that basically having different consequences in the in the amount of coupling you create so hey. I, I want to point out uh, one quick thing, and then uh, I heard you um, had a question, Kenny, but the, the things that <clears throat> all of us have to kind of reconcile across all this is there's tension. And you mentioned this in the blog post that what you would do to optimize solely for performance and latency might be different than what you would do to optimize for you know this, this flexibility and decoupling. And, and yeah. just kind of like upfront recognized that there's definitely tension and, and compromises that have to be made when when you're when you're engineering these things. So there's not necessarily a right answer or a wrong answer. It's a question right. of what what are you optimizing for in in this specific case? Definitely, yeah. So that was it was definitely one of the the core drivers that we also uh, got into discussion on on Twitter about like what what's the or. Actually, we didn't get uh, into discussion about that on Twitter explicitly, but it sort of um, flew around in between the tweets. So, like the the question of like why do you actually separate the systems in the first place? What's your actual goal, and how does your 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 uh, architecture actually support that? And I think with with microservices, it, it's usually that you want to to enable the different teams to ship features independently, and you, the teams get more independently the less they have to talk to, and that's probably then something that Andrew is going to disagree with me. The less you have to, you have to talk to others. That's probably the nuance I want to emphasize here. I'm not saying you 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 don't want to communicate, but if if you're forced to talk to to other parties in 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 that scenario, 
that's that's not a that's not a good thing in the first place. That's rather something you want to avoid, right? But um, of course, if you if you you have to agree or have to talk at some at some points uh, because you you um, have to define like the shared semantics of, of APIs. But um, yeah, I think that's it. So I, I think oh, a question. I just want to add one thing there, Andrew. Um, yeah. Just to make sure that we kind of follow that thread of what you were talking about, the expectations between certain um, microservices that expose REST APIs. Now, Ali, you having worked on and led the Spring Data REST project, you found yeah. yourself uh, quite familiar with hypermedia, specifically HotOS. Can you speak to yeah. how HotOS can help alleviate the problem of having these contracts between services? Uh, yeah, that's a, it's also I, I mentioned that in the in the blog post, or it, it's more in the end where I basically get to the point where what I propose, um, like in a maybe not as an alternative, but what I propose to to focus more on when it comes to the the, the definition of these kind of contracts in the broadest sense of like what do we agree on like between systems, right? So. Um, the, the aspect of hypermedia in, in REST systems is often a very over, overlooked one, but it's actually a very, very effective means to um, reduce the amount of coupling between systems. And um, the way it does that is, I mean, there's like, it's a two-level thing, basically. The first thing is adding hypermedia means to, the, to your representation, which means you would add links to your JSON. Just like a web page has links, you would go ahead and uh, def use one of the, of the, of the formats that, that are around. There's a couple of them in JSON, HAL and collection JSON and Siren and whatnot. But it basically enables you to put links into the responses and the client could actually follow them. That in the first place basically only links data to data, right? So that's, that's nothing really, really fancy, but uh, already helpful. Um, the, the tricky part and the, the one that's, that's actually one of the most important ones in REST in terms of the, uh, the evolvability aspect of APIs is uh, the so-called hypermedia as the engine of application state which basically means that depending on the resource state, you would uh, add a link to, uh, to the representation. And when that state changes, you would, might even remove it. And that can be used to basically signal the client that it can do something under certain conditions. And you might ask, ask yourself then, okay, well, why, how does that help in terms of evolvability? That helps because the client doesn't have to look at the JSON content, maybe the, the individual fields, in too much detail, and then basically replicate logic that is already on the server itself, which the replication actually would, would lead to the coupling, right? So let me give you an example. There's like, let's say you have this, this kind of order in your, in your system, and there's a business rule that says the order can only be canceled if it's not paid yet. Right, and there's a human readable status field in the representation. It says payment expected or something, right? And while that's the case, it can be canceled. So if you now bake the logic into the client and literally program it, like if the status field is payment expected, then present the payment button. Let's say for a mobile client or something. Then you've added you've added additional semantics to that field, right? Stuff that's not even in a in a contract somewhere, not not something. It's probably documented somewhere, but it's not not technically in a in a 
in a JSON schema or something because you just can't define it that way. Um, if you then have to, for some reason, change the uh, the, the the field or the, the condition, right? Let's say we can now cancel orders if they are paid already, right? Then that that client replicating that logic becomes a problem because now we have to communicate the uh, that change to the client and then potentially negotiate a new contract or whatnot. And if you're instead introduce hypermedia means and only tell the client if there's a cancel link in the representation uh, you can issue a delete request to issue the cancellation right then that cancel link can appear in different in different other uh, scenarios and the change in in when that cancellation is actually um, out is basically condensed into a Boolean yes-no question on the client, right? It just needs to look for, is the link there or not? And if so, I could do something. If not, something else, I can't do it, right? So, um, And that helps helps the to, to basically to keep a lot of the, the logic on the, on the server or the details of that logic, basically. Um, and actually allows it to... or um, Makes the the this the, the scenario of a breaking change in a in in some in some in some logic uh, less likely, or that it yeah it makes it like less likely that that you run into that breaking change scenario. Um, does so, that make sense? Yeah, I, I agree with everything you said, and it definitely makes sense. The the thing that is kind of interesting, or or <clears throat> what I was reacting to with respect to communication is. When, when you introduce something and you gave this example uh, of the cancel, um, and that's going to be, you know, in, in, uh, there's more than one way to solve this problem, but um, I, I think it's actually pr pronounced Hadios, but whatever. Um, yeah. go, going forward, you, you still have to tell like someone else on the client to mm -hmm. implement any logic to be able to use that. So, so certainly introducing those things and not breaking. I think generally there's a bunch of tricks you can use with respect to how fields appear and what the logic is. And, you know, that, that could be um, some implicit, um, but, but the kind of general Postel's law robustness principle still applies that you, yeah. you want to be conservative in what you do and you want to be liberal in what you accept from others. And that solves like a bunch of problems people run into with really strong coupling. And I think what you were reacting to is when, when you do things in such a way that it, creates a lot of unnecessary communication. It creates a lot of overhead that is, it, it's not inherently adding any value. It's just there because it's part of the, the quote unquote process of the contract that, mm -hmm. that I also have a visceral reaction against. Yeah. I mean, the, the, what, what, um, um, one aspect coming up here is that if you, if you just from the example I mentioned, you, uh, it, you realize it's it's an it's an it's been some functionality that's like actually implementing more more business value. Let's say like the 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 cancellation of an order, right? That that's not just like an an arbitrary. Oh, we get some JSON, we change some values, and we put it back, right? So we poked at at the data basically. It's more looking at the API from a okay, the API allows me to actually implement business functionality. So it's not a, not a, not really a, a sort of a, mimicking a data access API over HTTP, really. Um, and that's probably, um, that's, a, that's a crucial point because 
if you're not writing these kinds of um, these kinds of APIs, then that benefit might not even be as um, as significant to you, right? And I just read up the 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 original uh, article from Ian about consumer-driven context. He has this notion of a conversation. So when between the client and the server, there's more of a high-level conversation. Um, then that kind of approach is kind of um, is, is is very useful. Whereas in other scenarios, which are which might be perfectly fine, right, where you just want to have an HTTP interface to your to your data, right, uh, just because you want to add security to it or whatnot, um, and that that those high level conversations are not the main driver, um, then the hypermedia aspect might not be as important to you. But then you create more coupling between the services, um, but if you just if you're aware of that and um, um, deal deal with it accordingly, then then that's just fine. It's just uh, I just don't want to like get, create the impression that there's like a black and white and here's the right thing to do always. Uh, it's it's more of a you have to find out what kind of of API you're actually creating. And I'd argue the more coarse grained your systems are and the more coarse grained the, the systems that interact are, uh, the more you actually want to expose real business functionality via the API and the more important those those aspects actually get. The more the more you get into the smaller and basically let's say have a like your your shopping system and then you realize you have to like scale your your reads and writes differently. You might even want to split up them internally like like have the 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 business split on the on the macro level and then internally even um, create different uh, different services uh, just to be able to scale them differently, and then it's a totally different scenario because you're you're controlling the scope like on a, on a different level, and um, um, can then also live with a with a bit more stronger coupling. You might not even want to use REST in that case, but like a more uh, more um, efficient protocol here because like on the on the on the smaller scale, the the performance implications might be different ones as well. So. Um, yeah, trade-offs as always, right? Exactly. Uh-huh. Good. Right. So, there, yeah, I mean, did, can anyone make sure Kenny Schaefer, you have a, other thoughts on that before we? Yeah, I think I'm in? fine with that. So, I, I I think we can. If Andrew doesn't have anything to add to that, I think we can move on to kind of the next topic. Well, actually, I want to. I don't know if this is moving on to the next topic, but I kind of want to <laughs> introduce a scenario and int- and and we'll throw it back and forth about what people think you should do. Uh, so, so you have some service has APIs. It's, it's, I don't know if we need to get more specific about, you know, functionality or canceling or whatever, um, that functionality is, but things talk to things over network. There's, there's clients. And at some point you're successful and you have a bunch of clients and maybe some of those clients are third party and, and you, you need to make changes or you want to introduce functionality. What, what is your general strategy to uh, either support backwards compatibility or you know kind of broadcast, negotiate? And people have tried a bunch of different things. And you brought up in your blog post, which is also one of my pet peeves, uh, people start putting you know, slash v1, slash v2 in the endpoints. They do like a bunch of, I don't know, there's a bunch of like weird version juggling things people try to do to solve this problem. But I'm, I'm curious to see or hear what you what you think the options are or what you would advocate uh, to solve this problem? Um, 
to be completely honest, the the the, the point I'm, I'm that's not the point that I made really. I just refer to it. Uh, it's it's getting back to one of the interviews with Roy actually, Roy, the guy behind the rest dissertation, um, is that it the, the problem is not really like which means to choose, but that you're actually better off if you're not thinking of versions, but rather uh, consider the thing that you build. If you if you have a breaking change. Uh, and you need to to ship it. Um, think of it as a completely new service that, by, by actually, doesn't actually have uh, any relationship to the to the to the to others. Because then all of a sudden, <clears throat> you you're not creating these these implications about like okay, uh, what 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 parts of or which which resources of that API do actually change? What about about the the caching state uh, can i actually negotiate between between the two quote unquote versions or um, is it is it just better to to think of it as a as a completely different different service so i mean there you you already can just like go ahead and use different like host names or something right so that's again this is again like uh, rather considering it a different service than a version of the same thing because um, then the clients just like get get all confused about okay which version do I request and what kind of answer do I get and in the end it doesn't really matter if you're using a, like an HTTP header or a, a, a path segment or a, a subdomain for for um, for uh, your services uh, because yeah the client will have to just detect it either way and then uh, talk to it and potentially be it's potentially able to to reuse part of the of the logic but it will also have to just like rewrite other parts of it basically the ones that that you broke but just to play devil's advocate that's kind of at odds with uh, the recommendation from the restafarians that you should just have that one be a canonical you know like the the argument people often make is there's there's only one website right and that that website's going to change over time Right. So, so like you don't, you wouldn't all of a sudden have, you know, another another website for your company just because you wanted to update the, the thing and like keep that one. So like old clients would go to the old one. Yeah, I mean, of course, the 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 further you can get away with, let's say, uh, content negotiation or something with with version media types and something. That's that's something you can do, but at the same time, um, if you're if you're if you're uh, deploying a new website of your company, you're actually not doing a breaking or you're not you're not introducing a breaking change because it's still just the website. You just go to the root site and you get something, and then you you find your ways through through the website by following the links and stuff. So I mean, having having been uh, the victim of a new website uh, more than once in my life, <laughs> there's, there's definitely breaking changes from a human usability perspective when you've got a routine that you're you're doing on a on a website that has a certain user interface and that right. changes out from under you right I, I, i'm not sure that that principle is that much different than than the 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 adding a cancel button to the to the the payload 
the, the point I'm trying to make is that the, what, what do you do as a human being if you find yourself like with going to eBay like after a decade or something and not finding the buttons at the places that, that you used to find them? They're either gone, right? I mean, they, they basically just drop functionality or they moved it to some other place and then you have to find some discover it to some to some degree. Uh, but it's not that you 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 exchange the the eBay website with the eBay website V and then you all of a sudden need to be reprogrammed completely as a as a user. You just like go ahead and still use it, and it it they, it basically uh, because from from the web point of view, from the website point of view, nothing has changed. It's still HTML and HTTP and get and post requests really. Um, the point is actually that that's a that, that's it's it's not a good a website change is not a good example for breaking the API because a breaking change in the API is usually um, semantics of the fields changing right or uh, some some the structure maybe in the JSON changing um, but that's not going to happen in the uh, in HTML so the HTML is still HTML so the media type is still the same. Um, Do you see the supportability change there, though? I mean, is it realistic to have teams maintain three or four separate services instead of a... I mean, maybe it's the same as maintaining versions, but it seems like an operational burden as well goes on there. I mean, that's exactly the point. The, the, um, there is a great blog post. I, I think we can we can link to that in the show note. Uh, the, the, the hidden costs of versioning APIs where someone uh, took a really, like... Um, he did some some scientific analysis about what or in how far the effort of maintaining API versions in parallel actually increases. It, it's it's not increasing linearly as you can probably imagine, and uh, he's basically making the point that it's 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 worth investing um, the time to uh, to try to avoid that because it's because because of the fact that it's so much effort and it's it's actually replicating into the clients right because um they might might have to um support it have to be upgraded as well to the uh, to the uh, to the new version because it's not only the effort to create a new version of the api but also uh the uh, all the clients and sometimes you're not even aware of 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 clients and um um if you let's say you have a public api right you don't even know how many clients are out there that are actually using the API, and yeah, exactly. and and all these things complicate the matter. So that's 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 all arguments why I'd argue you you want to avoid that as much as possible. Uh, th- those breaking changes and uh, oftentimes the APIs I see or there's there's a lot of potential or would have been a lot of potential to actually avoid that in the in in the first place. Um, but yeah. What, Kenny, what do you think about versioning specifically uh, in sort of system of systems or microservices world? Yeah, I think in theory, you can say a lot of things about versioning and how backwards compatibility is going to affect the rate at which your consumers are going to be able to upgrade. But in reality, things are messy in enterprise software. So you, you can't necessarily um, kind of put a standard forth that says we're not going to version our APIs because you'll always run into this problem where you have this branding change that maybe it's a, a thinking incorrectly about the design of the API and, and you want to be able to support future changes from, from more cons- 
uh, consumers to be able to utilize that functionality uh, in the way that it was intended. And you're just always going to have those clients that that need just need that V1 compatibility, and they don't need to upgrade. So in in practice, versioning your APIs is, is fine. I I think that the way I would frame this right now, mm -hmm. and, and this is the way I think about all these problems, is there's no such thing as a free lunch. Mm -hmm. And and all these are points of of what you're going to so th so this notion of the hidden cost if you if you think you're going to save something in one regard you often end up paying for it somewhere else and and so just be thoughtful about what you're trying to optimize and whose life you're trying to optimize right so I, I definitely have this pet peeve for uh, the versioning in the API or, or the versioning in the endpoints. Or you know the thing people do if they put a .m in front and redirect you for your mobile device. Uh, I I don't personally like it's annoying to me as a user, um, but someone did that because they're optimizing for their local, you know, lifestyle for their for their experience as a developer or whatever, mm -hmm. and, and had some some operational or developer benefit that they were optimizing for um, that that might make someone else pay uh, that price in another way. Right. So. Kenny, so let's, you know, a lot of our customers are starting to do some pretty big replatforming efforts. I mean, we're, we're, I, I tweeted out something today, one of our customers doing a, something with millions of lines of code that it's worth a billion dollars a year to them as an application. They're still refactoring it into microservices, doing some other things. How, how do you advise people to, you know, what are those tangible things up front? Should they use Spring Cloud Contract if they're using Java? Should they be, you know, what are they supposed to be doing? And where are those pitfalls that you say, gosh, especially up front, don't do this right away. And it might feel like premature optimization or things like that. Help people who are starting to tackle some pretty big efforts to get into more microservices or getting more into cross-service communication, not make mistakes that they're going to regret 12 months from now. So I think this is a really interesting topic. Uh, it's a good question. I think right now there's just a lot of confusion around how do you effectively test a microservice architecture. I don't think we've seen the patterns emerge yet for how that's done, especially cross-platform. If you're using different languages, if you're running in a polyglot environment. So what contracts give you in a way, and I think directly to how we implement them in Spring Cloud contracts, which is a little bit different than what Ian Robinson had posted with Martin Fowler on his website, which really takes this perspective of I'm going to publish the functionality of my service as a contract stub. I'm going to, as a producer, assert against that functionality so you know that in production, this is how I intend to use that API. Um, now, the consumers don't have to implement the same exact test. They can implement just certain parts of that test or they can assert against different conditions. Uh, but essentially, you're going to be able to publish that contract as a producer, as a test, that your consumers can just uh, download as they go through their uh, build and test environment and then run integration tests against that functionality. Uh, now, this doesn't couple you to that services uh, expectations. You're just coupled to how you expect to use it. And, and not, not exactly in production, but your advancement into the production environment. So you have to go through that promotion process to get there. Schaefer, do you have war wounds from this? How are you going to keep somebody from uh, shaking their head 12, 18 months from now going, that was a poor choice up front? I think, honestly, um, if you're going to be involved in computers and software, you're going to have that problem no matter what you do. Because <laughs> to, to, today's That's best fair. practices, 
are always tomorrow's uh, legacy code. But, but where do you see premature optimization that people sometimes start too quick? Do you see any I, here? I mean, I think that the kind of going back to some of all, all these um, original responses, I, I think that there's there's things that are strategically decomposed to enable teams to deliver, continuously deliver. And then there's, oh, buzzword compliance. Let's like make everything small and separated by high latency network um, communication. Mm-hmm. Um, th- those things are not necessarily the same. And, and I think that, you know, outside of the contracts and whether you're going to go to a tool uh, to enforce them and test them. I do. I, I I love some of the stuff that's going on with the with the contract testing um, as a mindset. Um, at the same time, I feel like every generation re-implements Corba, uh, or then you know then they call it SOAP, or and then mm-hmm. like let's put XML in the middle or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. But but in general, what you really want to be able to do is is have the ability to have a high confidence. That what you're going to do is going to work, and the the tooling can certainly help uh, enforce the the properness uh, of that communication. I, I also going back to some of the things I was reacting with Ollie. Don't think you ever get out of the the fact that smart people solve problems, and that if you have smart people on both sides of an equation uh, talking to each other, just going back to the kind of truism that is Conway's law. If there's problems between two groups of people working on the subsystem of the larger system, then that's going to be reflected in, in the API. And whether you're going to enforce that with, uh, with code that has you know, hard enforcement of the policy as a contract, or you're going to enforce that by convention uh, as, as human beings cooperating with each other, is kind of left to as an exercise for the reader. But, but to me, it all goes back to people. This is all software is about people optimizing the experience and the performance of other people. And you, you, you can never get away from that, that high value of communication. That's well said. I wanted to quick click on that with one thing, cause you tweeted something, not that it's not always sarcastic, but you tweeted something today about that. Once you add message cues, you have two problems. You know, when you think oh, about, no, I, said, I said some, cause it's actually, there's a very famous quote about um, regular expressions. Right, right. Now you have, <laughs> Now you have two problems. And uh-huh. so I said, sometimes when people have a problem, they think I know I'll solve this with messaging. Now they have Q problems. I appreciate the pun. Uh, so when you think of inner service communication, do you think that that's the queuing again, it's probably based on scenario, at least from my experience, but are there cases where you see a crawl walk run of, Hey, first, maybe you even have synchronous web service communication and maybe you track latency and things go to async or eventually go to messaging or, you know, do you have any sort of decision criteria you'd like to make with those? I mean, I think that there is this missing language. This is one of my my favorite topics, actually, around architecting systems. Mm-hmm. And and often when people talk about software architecture, they start talking about this kind of ivory tower uh, of abstractions and, and how they communicate together. But when you sit and think about the system and 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 start especially mapping out the the what people will euphemistically refer to as non-functional requirements, the the way that you queue, the way that you cache, the way that you do all these things can can have a, a huge um, impact on on the qualities of that system, mm-hmm. and and I think that there's there's kind of like a missing pattern language that the industry doesn't have 
to, to discuss this properly. So kind of as a, as a rule of thumb, like I look at a problem and it's like, I, I can think about the throughput. I could think about the numbers and that starts to kind of have an intuitive sense of like where I would queue or where I would cash or where you could get away with synchronous or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. but I, I don't feel, and, and I'd love to hear what, uh, Kenny and Oliver, um, I don't feel like we got that proper language to discuss those patterns um, across the industry. There's like people that have an intuitive sense of it. Um, and you know, there's little patterns and people, you know, pull out specific things and you know, whatever, say things like CQRS or whatever. And that's, that's, right. that's great. But there's, there's not really like, Hey, when you see this thing, you should, you should solve it exactly this way. I don't feel like we really have uh, well-defined patterns. Hmm. Kenny, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, I just want to reiterate what Andrew just said about not, us not having a pattern. So if you look at the last 15 years of software development, it's really about companies who have innovated, have been pioneers, who have led the way with a certain approach that uh, was seen to be successful in the long run. And then you'll have uh, these thought leaders or experts come along and, and write books and establish the vocabulary. Um, we've seen that a lot, especially with Agile. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to reiterate that point. I think that's a, that's a great point. I feel like we're at the at the phase where it's kind of a pop culture and there's pockets of people who've got the experience and the intuition, but the language is yet to emerge where we're really able to have kind of semantically dense conversations about these patterns yet. Yeah. Yeah. Ollie, thoughts on the, are we missing patterns? I mean, I've got enterprise integration patterns up here on my bookshelf and read that for the last 10 years, but I know what you're saying. I mean, the integration spaces been talking about some of these just straight up messaging patterns for a while but I, I i understand we're talking differently as you factor in all the different communication aspects that involve connecting systems well i think there's 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 certainly patterns that are referenceable in the book with respect to queuing caching whatever right. um i think those are those are i wouldn't say they're well established you know certainly not to the degree that some quote-unquote patterns got established in in other aspects of software but the thing that's absolutely missing is being able to kind of qualify and quantify the needs of a system and then map that into those patterns. That's, yeah. that's well said. I think that's what's missing is some of that. When is this the right fit versus like, I'm just going to use this sort of wiretap pattern here. I'm going to use of this the pub worst, sub here. The worst things I've ever seen in my technical career were people misapplying patterns to, to mm-hmm. solutions that they were never intended to be. Yeah. Actually, it's it, one of the, it's one of the aspects that I like about, uh, about the rest dissertation so much. Um, who, who was the, who of you was it who wanted to me to define rest actually? <laughs> I threw that as throwing it down you the gauntlet. Yeah. To really rile people up. I don't have to define it because it is defined. And uh, I, I, I especially like the way it's defined because that sort of plays into what Andrew just said. Is mm-hmm. it's People usually think of it of uh, like there's URIs and there's HTTP methods and whatnot. And that's, that's actually already like the, like the implementation step to some degree because fundamentally it's, it's about like there's certain characteristics or there, here's a set of constraints that were applied to the thing called the internet or the web and HTTP as its protocol implementation, right? Here were some constraints about, like, let's say, the uniform interface, right? Or there's a well-defined set of methods really have to be get proposed. It could be something else, but you, do, you, you constrain yourself. You, 
you you put your constraints onto yourself, and by that you get some effects, right, mm-hmm. of the scalability, evolvability, and whatnot. And certain certain constraints uh, imply or have a much bigger impact on certain effects on the system. Just like I mentioned, the hypermedia, uh, hypermedia or HUS aspect being the more the most important one of all of these in terms of evolvability of, of APIs. It also plays into scalability, but maybe not as much as statelessness or what have you. So uh, fundamentally, the, the, the idea of like, defining the constraints and the effects that those apply or adhering to those constraints um, uh, then, then causes is um, might be a, um, an approach to actually define same things for the the things we just discussed uh like okay um do i want to 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 um to avoid the intersystems communication right mm-hmm. like in w- while i'm serving a user request i don't actually call out to other systems what effects does that have on the way i need to deal with data the need the the way i have to uh, approach consistency within the the overall system and whatnot um and maybe one one example um, that we can give our listeners are, is that the, the self-contained, uh, self-contained systems approach, uh, there's even a website about that, scs-architecture.org, uh, it's basically coming up with a set of these constraints or um, some, some, what is it, heuristics or um, I'm lacking the, a good term for that, but a set of rules basically that, that you... Uh, that you force yourself into when designing a system of systems and then um, giving you like um, or describing the consequences that that has on the system that, that you will be creating. Um, it's, it's a special kind of, of flavor or granularity of microservices to some degree, but I, I found it to be a, a good, a good uh, example for that kind of, okay, let's agree on a set of rules and see what kind of consequences do we get from them. I, I agree with uh, with with Oliver, and I just trying to tie it back to what we were saying. I feel like the people who've had experience over the last ten years are starting to to have those heuristics. But what we haven't done is taken that next step where those are are codified, and that yeah. and that we can have yeah. rich conversations about them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And who do you? It'll be interesting your take. I mean, this is this isn't just an architecture discussion, especially ivory tower, but not even you know. So is this engineer make every developer should start to be internalizing some of these things? Does this stuff emerge from an architecture over time, or do you not really believe in that and think that these are some overarching things that should factor into a system design? Kind of who plays the role on projects to make sure that some of these things are done in a good fashion? Kenny, who do you think? Yeah, so I would. I would say the architect still has a place. Maybe not the ivory hour, uh, hour architect, but an architect who can maybe embed themselves on a team and kind of give a, a set of rules for how you're able to test, especially against uh, microservices that you consume. Because at the end of the day, if we have 500 microservices in an architecture, and sure, there, there may be modularity in a certain set of microservices, but how do you really think about going into a testing environment and testing against maybe 20 or 30 microservices uh, without having to strap an entire environment to test uh, one-to-one between each service. So I 
I think that's what we're seeing with things like Spring Cloud Contract, where we can simulate a service based off of a contract. Um, but yeah, I think that you still just need knowledgeable people on your team to be able to uh, set forth these, uh, I guess, experiences that they've had in the past developing in this architecture. Yeah, Oliver, thoughts on yeah. who, who plays the role in this to make sure that you uh, are thinking of the right principles? Everybody I'm or to certain folks? I'm I'm, t I'm totally with Kenny here. So uh, I guess it's um, for for some of these aspects, we just have to learn from the people that, that build these kind of systems that try different approaches and um, um, yeah, found out what's work, what was what was working for them. But it, at this point, it's kind of important to abstract from the concrete situation they were in to the to the or to the the fundamental. Um, context. So not every not every company is a Netflix, right? So what 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 might work for Netflix uh, will only work for you if you're in the same situation, if you have the same driving forces. Um, and um, what else? What did I want to get to? Um, that thing. The I'm sorry, I lost. I, I totally lost it now. Anyway, <laughs> no problem, Schaefer. Your thoughts on that? Who takes responsibility here? I think that the, the proper way for an organization um, to answer that question is it's everyone's responsibility. At the same time, mm -hmm. uh, everyone, everyone probably has a little bit of specialization and role. And the, the role of the, the PowerPoint jockey architect uh, should probably be an endangered species at this point, although I know they're still thriving in certain pockets of the enterprise. Um, the, the things that have been successful, if you just want to look at examples you can see the things that happen at at, at amazon you can see the things that happen at, at google netflix whatever as an example there's there's often a role um, of the architects or sres or whatever who they don't have a project that they're trying to deliver the the functionality for the business so much as the the mandate to to roam around and look at how things are working and, and focus on making them better. And then another thing I would add, and this is you know, something I think people learn the hard way, one way or another, uh, sometimes by accident, is that it, there's a high value to experimentation. And, and one of my mentors early as an engineer always said, you should never implement the first thing you think of, <laughs> that, that, that you should force yourself to think of a few solutions and, and articulate, at least in your own kind of mental process, what the trade-offs of those solutions are before you make a decision. But a lot of things you can never, like you can never really know how things will work until you make them work. And, and, and that is sort of undervalued in, in a lot of pockets, but going back to, and I also feel very strongly that a lot of what's happening with microservices and trying to build reliable systems can learn a ton of lessons by studying um, Erlang and, and the thought processes of um, Joe Armstrong in particular um, around reliability. And one of the things that the, the Erlang authors uh, said that I think just resonates, and I, I say this all the time in, in meetings with customers, is that if you, if you don't experiment before you put something into production, then, then production is always an experiment. Mm-hmm. Very good, Ollie. Did you uh? Yeah, think I, get your I, idea back. Yeah, I got it. The 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 thing I wanted to mention is that 
the the reason we're actually talking about stuff like that, like about microservices and systems of systems, is that we've all made experience with the the other approach to to that to bigger systems, which were monoliths, right? And we 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 tried and we 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 some succeeded and some drew. Uh, the 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 necessary conclusions for new projects from that, and we drew conclusions from the failure, and that's basically what we just have to go through uh, for uh, for the distributed applied distributed systems uh, area that we're you know, era that we're actually in right now. So absolutely, that's that's just. I guess we're just gonna have to learn. That's that's probably mm-hmm. it, and that's a good thing, I guess. So so just to add the the way that I say the same thing is that the way that we got to these these microservice architectures was not because someone set out and said oh i need to build microservices it was a darwinian evolution that was solving the problem right like netflix didn't set out to build microservices it was the it was the way that they could work that solved all the constraints of the problem that they're trying to solve yeah uh, to piggyback off off that so Having done some research on the topic for the book, kind of looking at this evolution of where did microservice architectures originate from, the earliest reference that I could find uh, went back to 2005 or 2006 when Werner Vogel's CTO of Amazon explained the processes for how internally their engineers were thinking about delivering Amazon. Amazon.com without having to have this one monolithic application. And it came down for him when he explained in this article, he explained that it really was about control. where different teams were unable to control their own destiny because they were sharing resources, and that gave them a constraint, constraint which prevented them from being able to control how they got features into production. So I, I think that's interesting, too. Very good. Well, hopefully for our listeners, they've got lots of chances to try to keep tapping into this stuff. Kenny, I think you're part of this uh, a refresh cloud native roadshow that's kicking off. Is that right? Yes, yes. With yes, Casey West and, and Andrew. Yeah, so we'll be able to find you uh, on the road. And obviously, Pivotal folks love helping teams do some of these decomposition exercises. Hey, we're always learning, too. It's not like we come in always with the exact answers. I think we, we learn with our customers of what fits their environment. But Hopefully they can work with us or continue to try things out on their own. And most important thing is get out there and start doing this stuff. All right, fellas, I appreciate you coming on for this uh, very special edition of Pivotal Conversations. Well, Welcome. And thanks for listening. As always, this has been Pivotal Conversations, which you can find if you go to uh, pivotal.io slash podcast. Or if you're feeling really sprightly with your fingers, you can go to pivotal.io slash pivotal hyphen conversations. You might be feeling lonely that you haven't talked to the hyphen for a while. You can find our not-so-secret backend also at SoundCloud, which is at uh, soundcloud.com slash Pivotal Conversations. And Richard, what's the thing that we like to ask everyone to do uh, if they've enjoyed this episode? I mean, other than send us raw bags of cash. Right, right. Small unmarked bills, loose change to Cote. Uh, we do love if you add some reviews, you know, rate the podcast. If you find this interesting, it always helps us and helps our boss uh, justify our time spent doing podcasts. That's right. Well, we'll see everyone next time. And thanks again to everyone for being on. This is fun. Mm-hmm.